Welcome to episode 135 of No Challenges Reigning. I'm Ben Rothenberg, joined by my dear friend Courtney Nguyen. Hi, Courtney. Hello, Ben. It's our second episode in two days, thanks to Serena's big win at the SI Sportsman, Sportsperson Award. It's your third podcast in two days, but we're going to have <laughs> throw you a something of a bone by making this a random somewhat topic. It's our Olympic show. That's pretty cool. Do, do. Yes. So, which I wish we could have like harmonized or something. But anyway, even though it's December and the Olympics are eight months away, they're kind of their own animal. And we figured we would just do a thematic episode from questions we've gotten from you guys and other just general issues about the Olympics to talk about all those issues and tee it up. Because I think, Courtney, you've been saying, and everybody's been saying, talking about this year for a long time that just having it be an Olympic year kind of throws a different uh, sort of look at the calendar, different wrench in things. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, I, you know, we're so used to in tennis, you know, years click over and we get back into the rhythm and we go to the same places. Players generally keep the same schedule. It's like, you know, tennis highway hypnosis. almost. Yeah, exactly. But every fourth year, Things get a little wonky. It's a quarter quell to use it. Yes, exactly. And um, and that is going to be 2016 with the Rio Olympics. And and Ben, are you planning to go? Is is that your... not sure? Yeah. Not okay. Sure. I'm I'm not going. Yeah. I mean, the Olympics are a very interesting beast. I think within the tennis landscape, simply because on one hand, you have just kind of the emotional connection with the Olympics yeah. just as a fan or as a player, like the Olympics are awesome. And of course you want to go. And of course you want to win a gold medal. And of course you want to compete in it and, you know, bust your ass to get wherever and, and, you know, win Cause it's the Olympics. Cause it's the Olympics and the Olympics are awesome. We can hum the, the theme song. Time, no tournament. We can hum the theme song for other than the Olympics. You know, if, if you gave me a few more days, I could hum the Wuhan <laughs> theme song because it is epic i can do the dance moves touche um there's a whole choreography that goes with that um but you are correct but yeah like but so so it has that so you, your gut instinct is to like really really care a hell of a lot about the olympics but within tennis the olympics have held a very flux position within the sport i mean obviously it's gaining a little bit more momentum that's being something that's important but it's almost kind of like Davis Cup or Fed Cup if people cared, but there's always the risk that people might not care. I think people care about the Olympics. I think the Olympics translates. I mean, I think the ratings just use a, a sort of fair, not fair, but like a metric that translates. The ratings that the Serena Sharapova Olympics final got in 2012 were insane. They did like an eight point something in the morning, you know, and it was just because of the Olympic audience. It brings different people to tennis. People especially for the medal matches, people tune in, just enjoying the Olympics. And tennis becomes this thing that gets different people there. And I know probably some tennis fans during the Olympics probably like to watch things that aren't tennis. I mean... Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, obviously. Like, but, that, but that's kind of my point, is that I have a very conflicted feeling about tennis at the Olympics, simply because it's weird for the tennis players to be there. It, it's that whole dis discussion of, like, amateur versus professionals at the Olympics and stuff. But you have, like all these tennis players who are there and if they win the Olympics, okay, great. 
but let's not pretend that the Olympics is any is is like the biggest competition that those athletes, those tennis players are like gearing up for, you know, whereas like almost everybody else around them, it is right. Like the swimmers, the gymnasts, like the rowers, the people who shoot things. I don't know. I'm not sure. Like, I mean, it's a I'm, big deal. I'm not sure that that's a generalization. I think it's probably mostly right, but it's down to the individual and down to the country sometimes. I mean, like I'm sure from what I've heard from Russian athletes, for example, they take the Olympics more seriously than a Grand Slam. For, uh, I think, Chinese athletes, probably the same way. Li Na put a lot of stake in the Olympics, especially when they were being played in Beijing in her home yeah, country. Yeah, that's true. That's um, fair. And so I, I, down to personal preference on some level what people care about more. Obviously, like, but for, that's the, yeah, Fernando but, Gonzalez. I realize that for, for most sports in the Olympics, it is the be-all and end-all. And that's part of why events that are the, further down the spectrum than even tennis in terms of ambiguity of that, like men's soccer, the Olympics is a complete non-event. It's right. this weird sub thing that's not at all the class of the sport or the most desired thing or the thing to be attained. And that makes me feel like it almost shouldn't be in there. Tennis is a little bit more gray area. There are other sports. I mean, the, the problem with tennis, I think, and we got a question actually from one of our listeners, Tennessee Williams, who asked us, she asked us, is it worth the bother to try to go see tennis at the Olympics live? Or should I stay at home with my 17 streaming devices? <laughs> and I would say probably not. I mean, I think the Olympics are great. I went to Sochi and went to watch some curling with one off-the-clock spectator pursuit I did. And it's a lot of fun. But I don't think tennis would be the one that's worth it because a tennis Olympic tournament is like any other tournament. You're still watching players as individuals march through the draw. And I don't think there's any real different dimension that would justify the trip for somebody who's a purely first and foremost tennis fan outside of say South America. And I could be wrong about that, but no, I, I would, I would tend to agree with you there. I think that like London was special because it like, I would go, I would have wanted to be in London just cause I was like, I just want to see colors at the all England club. Like yeah. the thing that you would witness in terms of Olympics at Wimbledon be an incredibly unique experience that was valuable in and of itself, regardless of the tennis. So I would argue in 2012, it was definitely worth it. But to fly all the way to Rio to watch a hardcore tournament with a tiny draw that's incredibly condensed, pay all that money, honestly, I would rather save that money and go to the Australian Open for two weeks. Yeah. So to get more of a, a first-hand perspective of somebody who might have a different view of the Olympics because she stood atop a podium with a gold thing around her neck, which I feel like would improve your view of any situation. I would have hope. You, have you, have you like felt a medal before? Have you held? Well, you, yes. you have in Sochi, so you have. Well, I didn't get any in Sochi. No, the ones, the medals that I touched were from the Bryans. Yeah. When the Bryans yeah. won their gold medal in London, they came to Cincinnati and the U S open after, and just like gave their medal, like anybody like, Hey, where my medal? They were like for like they, it was it was so endearing. They were like forcing it on people because I remember I went to go down to interview them, and like Mike was or Bob was like, "Hey, like here, wear it." And I was like, "No, no, no, it's it's totally fine." You guys are like, "No, no, no," and he like forced like he physically forced it around my neck, and I was like, "Okay." And then they were like, "Here, let's take a picture," and I was like, "No, I really it's really inappropriate for me to like in my head." I'm like, "No, I can't wear your medal and take a picture with you. I'm a journalist," but it was like all. They were all just swept up in the moment. You had such a big smile in that photo, though. I remember that photo. Well, yeah, because it was like I had a freaking gold medal around my neck. It's so heavy. <laughs> it is heavy. And it's like pretty. And the weird yeah, thing I... about there is that I remember is it was kind of soft. Like mm. I remember it getting dented. 
because they threw it yeah. all around. They kind of, and I remember, I don't know if you can order replacements and there might be some program that lets you like order a replacement gold medal. <laughs> um, I remember one of them, because one of them had like the sharing medal, the other one that kept their safe and whichever twin it was, I forget which one. Um, so like, yeah, I'm going to switch my medal for the, for the good one or something. But yeah, all that to be said, we can find out from our guest, the 1996 women's singles gold medalist for the United States, Lindsay Davenport, about her memories of Atlanta and her thoughts on how Olympic tennis has uh, grown and evolved and what it is now and what to look forward to in Rio. So here's Lindsay. We are very excited to be joined now by Lindsay Davenport, who knows a thing or two about Olympic tennis, having won the gold medal in women's singles in 1996 in Atlanta. Lindsay, how you doing? I'm good. How are you guys doing? Very good. Uh, I'm just wondering, I guess, what when you when you started out as a tennis player, I think when you were a kid, maybe first playing, I don't know how seriously you were playing, before tennis was even an Olympic sport, because it only got added back in 88. So I'm guessing when you yeah, first... Yeah, exactly. When it, I'm guessing when you first picked up your racket and maybe started having the dreams of, you know, playing the Wimbledon final or whatever, you know, kids dream about when they're hitting against the wall... The Olympics were not something that was first and foremost on your radar. I'm guessing, I'm wondering when that sort of changed and when, if ever, it became a bigger goal for you. Yeah, it never, I think, any tennis player that grows up, and this generation that's coming up now might be a little different, but it was never about the Olympics. Um, it was always, I mean, U.S. Open, Wimbledon, as you said. And I think that was part of the beauty. Like when I started making that transition into the pros, you realize, wow, we have like four chances every year to win a major title. And you look at something like gymnastics or ice skating, and really their focus is once every four years. So, you know, how lucky are we in tennis that we have this ability to, um, you know, play for something so important so often. But for me, you know, my father was an Olympian, right. so the Olympics were a huge deal, like, in our house, and when the Olympics came to L.A. in 84, I was eight, and both my parents volunteered and worked the Olympics, and, you know, we were at events all the time. I realized, like, wow, this is, like, so amazing, so cool, and then when Capriati won in 92, that's when it was like, wow, this is really a possibility in this sport, and this is the coolest thing. Jennifer and I are the same age, same birth year. And to see her win at 16 in 92 was pretty remarkable. And that's when it really, in my mind, really settled in like, this is legit and this would be the coolest thing. Did, was it different at all for you in, in your experience in Atlanta, like being there? And as you said, you know, tennis players can, you, you get four bites of the apple every single year. Um, there can be this vibe sometimes where, you know, yeah, for the tennis players at the Olympics, it's not the biggest deal career-wise as, as uh, you know, maybe winning Wimbledon or the U.S. Open or something like that. Was that ever something that crossed your mind or ever a vibe that you got from the other athletes at all? It definitely, in, in the 90s, I think so. Uh, in 96, it was a big deal when Steffi said that she wasn't going to play. Yeah. Um, I know that some of the top men also skipped it right. in 96. So that has definitely gone away, it seems. And I, I credit or blame Roger Federer for a, a lot of the things <laughs> that go on in tennis. One, having like the utmost sportsmanship. I think he makes everybody else act better. But also, too, like, once I feel like those guys start committing to the Olympics and talking about what a big deal it is, it just seems like it, not that the Olympics need to be legitimized even more, but it does seem to have this ripple effect. And now um, it, is, it is a huge deal, and you hear the players speak about it and what it means to them. And I, I thought that transition came in 08 in Beijing, where 
going to China a week before the U.S. Open starts is not uh, ideal for a tennis player, and yet almost everybody did it there, and it's just kind of followed suit. And now it's almost like, wow, it would be a surprise if one of the top guys or, or girls wasn't in Rio. And that is a huge size, uh, just a huge shift from 20 years ago in the 90s. So I guess what do you remember about your, your first experience in Atlanta? I guess what were your expectations going in? You you were hadn't won any big titles to that point or any you know huge titles. I remember I was looking at your, your record. I was surprised that like four out of your first five titles came on European clay. I would not have guessed that. I know, that. right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I would not have guessed that. But, oh, but, like, God. but when, the, um, when the Olympics came around, what were your thoughts? Did you think you could get on the podium? Because you were seated about ninth, I think. Well... Definitely not. It was, you know, it was a huge battle to even make the team because in 96, we were allowed three singles players and the addition of one doubles player. The doubles player was always going to be Gigi Fernandez, but we had Monica, myself, Chanda Rubin, who was in the top 10, and also Mary Jo. And the four of us were all extremely close, and it was like only three of us were going to make it. And so it was kind of a really awkward where we're all kind of playing and, you know, counting ranking points, but all friends and all, you know, Fed Cup teammates. And when it when the acceptance rankings came down, it was Mary Jo that was left off. And I was devastated because she was like my best friend. And then as we found out the months later, the ITF made an exception, allowed her be, to be the doubles player. And then Chanda had a broken wrist and ended up not being able to play. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for me, like it was, the goal was just to make, the team and get to Atlanta and that part was amazing I didn't really think it was possible to win a medal I I think I was probably outside the top 10 I don't quite remember but I don't think I was even in the top 10 yet Um, and we got there early and everything about it was amazing like the village and opening ceremonies all of that stuff was a dream come true that um, probably for the first time, I wasn't so hard on myself and so stressed about results just because it was such a, an amazing experience. That's such an interesting take on it. I mean, uh, from from the players' perspectives, just because I remember talking to a bunch of the, the girls after uh, London, and they kind of said the same thing. They were like, you know, it was just an amazing experience that, yeah, I lost in the first round, I lost in the second round, but it didn't feel the same way that I do when I lose, like in the second round at Stanford, like it it was a completely different uh, feel. Totally. And people, I mean, the opening ceremonies, each, each one of them were the, some of the highlights of my life, like not even like of my tennis career. Yes. Having kids obviously are getting married, but like, it's almost up there with like winning these tournaments. It's an amazing feeling. But what people don't tell you is it's the biggest grind yeah. <laughs> of your whole career. It's like eight or nine hours. You're barely seated. You're running around. You're on the field. There's 15,000 people, athletes, 10,000 athletes, whatever it is. And then it's like, oh, we all have to exit out the same tunnel, <laughs> 10,000 of us. We all have to fight to get on these buses. To then to get back to the village to go through metal detectors. Like, it's so it's such a grind and it's so crazy and yet it's also worth it and i always tell the players and a few of them have asked me you know well i have to play the next day and i'm like you know i think it's one of those times where it's just not something you can miss the the experience that you get and the the camaraderie and the being around the other athletes it is you, you just you'll never be able to relive that your whole career it's amazing yeah, i remember i remember hearing debates about that in london when the players were debating oh you know should i go i think i think want to say that maybe judy murray had said for the british players not to go to the opening ceremonies because they didn't want them getting exhausted 
and and worn out for their matches. But I would say, unless you're a serious, serious metal contender, should, this is gonna be the best part of your Olympic experience, and you should definitely yeah, go. It was amazing. I mean, and especially like going through in Atlanta. You know, everyone's yeah. waiting for the U.S. team, waiting for the U.S. team, and then you get like we had to walk down into the stadium. It was like the most amazing feeling to walk into the stadium and all together. You know, you lock arms, chanting. It's it's you know, it's one of those things that gives you goosebumps. Um, and then it, I it. It's understandable. There's no question it'll affect your performance the next day, but I think sometimes you have to be realistic of how great the moment is and all that. Um, by 2008, after a bunch of Olympics, we got smart, and the Bryans and I, we ran off the field after one of the turns <laughs> and then had to find our way home from downtown Beijing back to the USDA hotel with no money and walking the streets at, like, night, just in a race to try and get back and get to bed. But we did march in and we did get to experience all that. That's awesome. <laughs> that is very, very cool. I mean, you obviously come from, you know, Olympic kind of stock. And so it makes sense that you would, you know, value the Olympics. And, you know, I talked to Maria Sharapova over the weekend and she's Russian and she's like, look, this is Russians are all about the Olympics. No one cares that I won Wimbledon. Like if I came back with a gold medal, it's a completely different beast. Um, but I'm, but I am curious just um, from your kind of commentating perspective and you're involved with, with the sport, like, is it good that the Olympics have taken more of a prominent role for tennis? I mean, it impacts the schedule just kind of every four years. It just kind of screws everything up, um, you know, interrupts rhythm. You run the risk of players playing at the open or in the fall, you know, let, like even worse off than they are normally. All these sorts of things, questions of, of ranking points, money, whether that's on offer. Uh, what are your kind of thoughts on it? Is it a good thing that the players prioritize it? Well, I think it, that is going to be the answer is going to depend on who you ask, because I'm sure the tennis, the regular tennis tours, it's not ideal to have this other tournament. Certainly the U.S. Open Series tournament, you know, it's always like, oh, gosh, we got to deal with the Olympics and fitting it in and who's coming and the tournament. But ultimately, what you want is your sport to grow and to get more eyes on it, to get more popular. And I got to tell you, Roger Federer, like, saying, playing the Olympics at Wimbledon, what a huge deal that was. I mean, it was a massive story. And I think anything that generates that kind of interest and that kind of publicity is ultimately great for the sport. Um, but, you know, even in my little world now of commentating, I'm like, oh, God, how am I going to fit in, like, the fifth, like, long <laughs> tournament? And, like, and, and it's so simple, but it's like, and then the players, like, how do the players think of playing a major tournament in Canada, going to Rio, coming back for Cincy, then the Open? It's like, there's no question there are just major scheduling issues that have to be done. And um, unfortunately, it falls in the busiest part of our season. Yeah. But I just think it, it kind of is, is a very cool thing. And, and I think it's great that people worldwide then start talking about tennis, not just uh, tennis fans. No, I, to I totally agree with you. Yeah, when you look back at your career when, you know, I don't know, people introduce you, let's say, to, to someone who knows nothing about tennis in your in your daily life, when if they hear that you won the Olympic gold, does that resonate with people in a way that's different than your three slams and singles? I think always. Yeah. It's, it's funny like that. It's just a different, and it puts you in a different category of, of getting invited to certain events that could be like Olympic gold medalists or, you know, something as silly as my, in my kid's school in first grade, they do this like study of ancient times and they do the Olympics and like the kids in the class who they don't really get it. They're six years old. <laughs> it's like, Oh, my mom was a gold medalist. I have to bring the medal in every year, <laughs> show the class, talk about it. And it's so funny. It's like, but it's like the biggest thing to them. But you know, a Wimbledon 
champion trophy or the U.S. Open champion trophy is biggest deal in tennis, but I think worldwide in athletics, the, the gold medal is is just a talking point that you, you at, at the time I had no idea, I just turned 20, had no idea that this would be something that would like stay with me for the rest of my life and the introductions or when they say your name, but uh, it is it is pretty cool. What do you what do you do with your medal when you're not bringing it into to school? <laughs> well, we lost it for a few years. Uh oh. <laughs> my mom like hid it. He couldn't remember where she hid it, and my and my husband like lost his mind. <laughs> He's like, "What do you mean? You can't find it." So then he took it from her possession, and now because we do have to bring it to school every few years, um, it has gotten moved around. It's I don't know my husband. <laughs> <laughs> My husband keeps a better eye on it than I do. I have no idea. Is it just, I'm, I'm curious because it's so, it's so small and portable compared to like a Wimbledon trophy. Does it like ever just like, you know, yeah. wind up in a drawer somewhere or something? Or between the seat cushions. Um, or... <laughs> it came like in this beautiful like wooden box. So um, I am sure it's in the box. It was one of those things where we have a really small kind of out of the way like little trophy cabinet where we, everyone in the family puts like a couple trophies. And I remember that my that they didn't want to put it in there just because they, my husband thought, oh, that might be, you know, someone steals your women's trophy or be better than the gold medal. Like, here you go. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, I do know he likes to hide it or put it in the safe or something. So that's where it probably is. That's solid. I had, I had one more question for you, Lindsay. I mean, we look and we've been talking about the Rio Olympics as being this um, potentially watershed moment for the current era of tennis, that, that there are a lot of players yeah. who are getting up there and, what's the sport going to look like post-2016? I mean, is that kind of something that, that is on your mind as well as you look at it? Like, as we go into 2016, like, who's going to be around in 2017, you know, finally after the Olympics are gone? Yeah, you know, so interesting. Everyone in 2012 was like, the Rio Olympics, the Rio Olympics, you know, I'm going to play till then. And already Roger's like, listen, I'm going to play after the Olympics. <laughs> yeah. And then you go, you look at, like, the Bryans, who have pointed to that forever, like, I don't know. I mean, I still think that Bob Ryan's going to hang around. I know he's got three kids and has played forever, but I could still see him playing, even if it's like 50% of the schedule of following here. Right. But really, it starts to really play games with you when you start thinking like, okay, 2020. Gosh, like, scary as it is, like, hard to see Serena and Fed playing in 2020 at, they'd be, what, 39 years of age then? Right. Yeah. Or yeah. so? So that's when it starts to get a little sad. I still foresee everybody who's quote anybody that all these people we talk about, I still see them playing in 2017, 2018 to be determined, but 2019, 2020, then it starts to get like a little sad and a little scary. I think, I think that's when the landscape will really shift. Um, but I think we could cross our fingers that we'll get like another two years of all these amazing people still playing. I think it's interesting because consider how relatively small, Olympics are on the tennis radar, it seems like for most players in prestige, that everybody wants to end with one. You know, people, no one says, oh, I'm going to retire. You know, in 2012, no one said, I'm going to retire the 2016 French Open or anything. They said, No, I know. Yeah. But but then can you see people retiring like 10 days before the U.S. Open? Like, yeah, yeah exactly. No chance. Everyone right? will play the U.S. I Open, know. I think, I just... at least. Yeah. Well, Mar- Marion Bartoli yeah, exactly. did. Bartoli. <laughs> Bartoli retired yeah. 10 days before the Open. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's a good point. You know, some I, people just want to retire in Mason. Yeah, exactly. Um, it'd be fascinating to see if anyone does do the mic drop in Rio. I don't see it. I just don't yeah. see it. But I don't know. I mean, 
you know, there's such a big thing to play for a couple of weeks later. And, you know, it just keeps going to cycle. And if you're healthy, but, you know, I've been surprised. Everyone was surprised at Slavia in New York. And so maybe it'll happen. I don't, I don't see it. I still think we have all the, the big names playing in 2017. One last thing. It's been, it's been the, the older, older, a bigger story so far of the Olympic hype. What do you think about your, the chances of your old doubles partner, Martina Hingis with uh, Roger? Is that so cool? I was, I mean, you never know. I mean, I will. Mixed doubles is a different type of game. Same sport, same shot, but it's a different beast. And typically, the most successful partnerships are the most ruthless and aggressive males. Like, er, and can you see like Roger like really going after trying to pick on a female player? Really. Yeah, that happened. Like, in, that oh. happened in London when Andy Andy Murray backed off in the uh, in the final against Azarenka, it, it, and then they lost. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I mean, and then of all people, Roger, can you see him taking like second, third, bashing it at a at a at a female at net? Like, it just <laughs> for some people that so that's what the this thing is about about mixed doubles is you have to treat playing the female like you're playing a male a lot of times, but kind of be clever in how you go about it so you don't look like a total jerk out there. <laughs> so you know, it's like I don't know. So it's. The two of them, and you see the pictures of them playing from Hoffman Cup, and you see a, what was it, like 14, 13 years ago? Yeah. yeah. Um, it is amazing, and I thought Roger's statement and his tweets about playing with her were so great, and they're going to generate so much interest. Um, I Obviously, I hope they do amazing. I just, you never know. I've never seen Roger play mixed doubles, so I guess we'll have to wait and see how he handles that. And does that mean Roger's playing men's doubles as well, or does that mean he's, only it's, playing two events. I, I would assume he'll that play all either. three just because yeah. he's won gold and with his stand before and they won the Davis Cup recently. So I think he has yeah. his odds. Okay. But yeah, I don't know. I think he, I remember him saying when Martina said no to him in 2012, remember he tried to get her out of retirement back then um, to play with him. Oh, I didn't know that. I, I okay. think that uh, he, he afterwards he said, well, it's, it'd be tough to play three events. He sort of shrugged it off that way. But I think he'd, he'd want to give it a shot. Yeah, because it's two out of three, the men's singles, until the final. So, yeah, I guess they could do it. It's still a lot of tennis in eight days, though. Yeah. It, it's a lot of tennis. But at least for him, he doesn't have the uh, the play restrictions where he has to play Canada and Cincinnati. He can skip those if he wants oh, to. So he has that yeah, little loophole. Yeah. So it doesn't, yeah. theoretically, it doesn't really affect his open chances if he still wants to make a run there. But, uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I'd be, I'd be surprised if he didn't play all three. You know, Roger, he's, he's ambitious. He's a little yeah. greedy. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like the rest of us, it doesn't even like, it doesn't even make him sweat. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> hey, well, thank you very much, Lindsay. This was awesome having you here. Uh, any other last Olympic thoughts or memories or anything you want to leave us on before we let you go out to look at yeah, your medal I or mean, find it? Yeah, exactly. Um, Gosh, there's there's been so many like crazy stories. All of them. I'll like I'll never forget 2000 opening ceremonies, and the team was Venus, Serena, Monica, and myself. Mm-hmm. And T- Todd Martin was on the men's team, and we went to opening ceremonies. That's when I realized at the time, like how globally popular Venus and Serena were. And at the time, they're teenagers, like 18 and 19 years old, and like we were absolutely mobbed on the field by other athletes like you know how you march in and then you stand with your country well like every country was breaking the barrier to try and just get over to venus and serena and Mm -hmm. like i'll never like todd martin and myself and monica we like had to and other players on the team we had to like try and like get a circle around them so they were safe like that (laughs) i'll never forget that was like one of those things in my life where i was like wow i really 
that was the first glimpse I had of how their lives are so radically different from some other, some just other tennis players. Yeah. Um, but it is amazing what, what emotions and camaraderie and everything that is kind of comes out of players at the Olympics. You see it on court sometimes and you see it in the village or you'll see it other places, but it's a truly a, just an amazing special experience that, um, I, I tell everyone, like you have to, be a part of you have to take advantage if you're lucky enough to to be given that opportunity very cool thank you very much Lindsay. yeah no problem guys thank you so much thank you very much Lindsay. so we got a lot of questions from you guys about the olympics olympic tennis the first question we're going to do is a pretty simple introductory one just to get everybody on the same page because this thing's only come around once every four years we've only ever once had an olympics during ncr before so uh question from peter menzel asks what are the qualifying criteria for each Olympic event? So you ready to dive into the rule book and hear that read aloud? I don't get to do that very much. I'm sure our friend Victoria Chiesa would wish that <laughs> we had more rule book segments. I almost wish I like brought her on to read the rule book aloud. Oh God, that would be amazing. That would we, be good. We really need to, we really need to get on that and be better about that. But yes, no, I have the rule book in front of me. I feel like I'm a lawyer again. Okay. And uh, yeah. Do you want me to? Why don't we alternate passages? It's just such fun for the whole family, right? Okay, sure. Uh, so basically, the women's men's and women's singles are the same. Men's women's are the same for both things. So for each draw, there are 56 direct acceptances, uh, six final qualification places, quote-unquote, which are called ITF places, which are pretty much wild cards. And they generally go to, like, the home country like uh, and maybe some other people who are notable names who didn't get them. And then there are two for what's for, called the Tripartite Commission, uh, which – it gives uh, spots to smaller countries. So you'll almost certainly see Stephanie Vogt from Liechtenstein getting one of these again. Uh, I think Marcos Bagdadis might have gotten in one year from this uh, for Cyprus. And it's generally underrepresented smaller countries at the Olympics get spots that way. So not one of the major spots, but they do get two spots, which is sort of a uniquely Olympic thing where if you're from Liechtenstein, you're in great shape. doesn't happen anywhere else. The same basic idea for the doubles, 24 direct acceptances, teams, and then eight ITF places, which are wild cards. Each country can only have a maximum of four players in the singles draw. And this changed a bit to say now that a national association, which has more than four players eligible for direct acceptance into a singles event, must select its four highest ranked players eligible based on the computer rankings. And Courtney, that changed a bit to take yeah. a sidebar off from the text. But that used to be a bit more discretionary for the federations. With exactly. a little more intrigue. Exactly. Which, yeah, exactly. It added a little bit more intrigue. Yeah, the rule is that now, okay, if you're like a, a country like in the men's, like in like, well, how Spain used to be, yeah. maybe not anymore, but how it used to be where, you know, direct acceptances, you know, top 50, they would have like five or six players in the top 50. Not all six could be direct acceptances. You could only take four that Spain could then say, okay, well, then in that case, look, you know, it's on grass. Yeah. So we want... Lopez, for example, is a better yeah, exactly. grass court we player want Lopez. than, yeah. say, Garcia Lopez or something. Sure. Yeah, whatever. But yeah, they, they could pick and choose. Now, as the rule reads, it's your it's your top four, which is, you know, which I think is pretty interesting. I, th- I think, obviously, that's much more fair. If you've qualified, you've qualified. But at the same time, like... You're, I am kind of surprised that the national organizing committees have kind of relinquished that right. Maybe yeah. they haven't relinquished it. Maybe the ITF was like, <laughs> take it or leave it. This is what we're doing. Um, but, you know, every every federation wants to, wants to be able to control their roster, right? Like it, if you have somebody who's like like a Venus situation, right? Like you were mentioning this before. In 2012, the, there was a case where uh, Varvara Lepchenko came out of nowhere in 2012. 
Um, she was ranked outside the top 100, and she, as a qualifier, made the semifinals of Madrid, which is a you know premier mandatory. And she racked up a lot of points and flew up the rankings quickly and had another good result in Paris, made the fourth round there. And from being not ever considered um, you know, a, a threat for the Olympic team, she suddenly put herself in the conversation and started moving ahead or close to, I forget exactly how the rankings shocking went. But for a while, there was a possibility that Lubchenco might make the London Olympic team over Venus Williams, who's obviously a five-time Wimbledon champion and one of the best grass court players of all time and also great in doubles. And Lubchenco suddenly was going to be able to upset this. And Lubchenco was not somebody who'd ever had you know, the Fed, we'll get into the Fed Cup criteria later, but she never played Fed Cup for the U.S. because she'd never been relevant enough to be asked, honestly. Right. And and so it was this weird out-of-nowhere situation. What was better discretionary? I mean, I think we said at the time, remember this debate's in the last cycle, I would love to see countries, and it could be by country, the way Eurovision does. Each country has their own selection criteria and their own competition. Always comes back to Eurovision. Always comes back to Eurovision. What can't we learn from Eurovision? <laughs> But no, have countries have like their own Olympic trials, I think could be really cool. Like if there were, let's say the USTA decided, hey, we're going to give the first three spots to the highest ranked players. And then the fourth spot, we will have a, you know, round robin or a, a, a draw between the next four for it and play on the, whatever surface it is going to be used at the Olympics. In, in Rio, it's a hard court. It's going to be a more neutral surface. I don't think it's as much of a factor. Uh, but for for Wimbledon, I thought that was really the way to go. Because there are a lot of countries, you know, U.S. women, German women had a lot of people in the mix then, Spanish men. You know, I think it would but, be good to make it, you know, a little bit more of a, a play-in and put some stakes on it than just have it be a normal ranking cutoff. Okay, fair enough. It sounds amazing, very, very entertaining, very nice for fans, et cetera, et cetera. In an already impacted season oh there's no time for it yeah yeah that's what it it's a fantasy i know okay we can't Fair all enough. be like eurovision uh, no no uh, with the ultimate fantasy yeah so so that's yeah ben kind of uh ran down that uh maximum four players acceptances obviously there, there's two of uh, any country or national organizing committee can field two uh doubles teams yes right and- so go ahead I was gonna. I might be getting this next, but you can only have a maximum of six players of each gender exactly on your team. So two, at least two of the players uh, who play your doubles have to also be in the single. If you get the maximum two doubles teams in, they have to be also from the singles crop. And so this can get tricky. The one the one that's gonna get this tricky for we got a question coming up. We can do this now. I think if we're at a decent stopping point for it, projecting the U.S. team. Let's look at like the U.S. women's team, for example. I think it's pretty safe to say, rankings-wise, both in the top ten, that Serena and Venus are in good shape. Yep. They're going to get in. That is defending as three-time gold medalists. They're going to get a double spot, even if they stink it up in the rest of the year. And they've actually played some really dodgy doubles since they won in London. Oof. They've had some bad battles. I'm not even talking Oof. about the time when Serena had her bizarre no, no, episode. No, no, no. Remember what was it? U.S. Open that she double faulted on match point. Oh, that was and in China. Destroyed, that was oh, China. China? Yeah. And then destroyed her racket? Yeah, they've yeah. had some weird losses and, and just played badly. They lost to Ronnie Vinci once. It was awful in Australia. That was a little bit tankish. And then maybe went to Serena that hurt her ankle in that match or something. They've had just some woeful matches. So I do not think on any stretch. I mean, they might very well get together and click again. But if they don't get in good prep, I could see them going out early in Rio. That could be like a, a, a sort of a surprise early, I think. Um, but anyway, they're going to get that. And then so what you have left then is two more spots for singles players and two more spots and then two and a doubles team. 
the way that that translates is that Bethany Maddox Sands has a tremendous amount of power next year. Any du- any doubles players ranked 10 or better based mm. on the recognized international computer ranking as of June 6th okay. will gain direct acceptance for the doubles event providing their partner has been recognized has a recognized ranking. They and and their partner have been nominated as a doubles team by their nation and the nomination does not bring a total. That's the Sonya rule. That's the Sonya rule, yeah. That's the Sonya rule from London, right? That yeah. was the whole point of like trying to make her play with whoever it was Yuki not Yuki Bambury but it was somebody it was a girl we never heard of yeah exactly that just had a ranking yeah so we can tee that back up so yeah so Bethany has a lot of power because if she stays in the top 10 and she's number what is she number three right now yeah if she stays in the top 10 she gets her pick of the litter she does she does yeah so so just to make it clear the ranking cutoff that we're talking about in terms of direct acceptances and all that sort of stuff uh is June 6th after the French Open. Yeah, basically. So, you, so you'll see a lot of the movement and a lot of the, the storyline pick up during the clay season. Uh, that's what happened with Lepchenko. That's what happened with Venus. I was the person who told Venus in Rome that she had qualified, basically, uh, back in 2012. And that's the first time I saw Venus kind of cry. Oh. So that was quite sweet. But yeah, so June 6th is, is the date. But so for doubles, the rule is any doubles player ranked 10 or better based on the recognized international computer ranking as of June 6th will gain direct acceptance for the doubles event provided their partner has a recognized singles or doubles ranking on that date, which means they could be ranked 1,000, and that's fine. Yeah, which is the Sonia Mirza rule, as we say. I mean, Sonia Mirza is, is going to be a top five doubles player at the very least, number one right now uh, for India, and there's no other Indian women to speak of in the top 100, at least, plus of the WTA doubles rankings or singles rankings and so she can take whoever she wants yep and leander pays got to do the same thing uh in london too because there were there's an odd number of doubles men and bopana and boopity played together and pays picked um somebody else who i forget yeah i mean to to continue with the the rule so yeah their, their partner has to have a recognized ranking uh their partner has to be nominated as part of the doubles team by their their national association, by their federation. And the third one is really the, the one that kind of gets into the rub a little bit, which is that the nomination can't bring the total number of players from that country to more than six. Yeah. So that's where, you know, if you're Bethany, uh, things can get kind of interesting, right? Because oh, I guess it doesn't really matter because if Venus and Serena pair up, then that's one doubles team. Yeah, so if so Venus then... and Serena pay, pair up, then Bethany can take anybody. Yeah, Bethany can take anybody. Bethany, assuming that Bethany does not get in for singles also, and she could. She can make a push and get into the top four for singles. Um, but if she's just in there for doubles, she can bring anybody at that point. Now, Which, that said, yeah. Bethany's, the bulk of Bethany's points come yeah. from the tr- first two majors. So Bethany is defending both the Australian and French Open, so 4,000 points f- are coming off for the cutoff. But the French will still be on her ranking, right? No, no, it's the post-French Open ranking. It's post-French. Okay, so yeah. that's a lot. So Bethany actually has to deliver i think has got work to do yeah yeah so people waiting in the wings for her to fail they're not going to put it this way but are the top 20 each ranked team of uh cops jones and spears you may know now atawa after Raquel cops jones got married um to mr atawa toby atawa yep so that team can't get in with bethany there unless bethany decides to pick one of them and split them up oh i know oh, drama the intrigue the intrigue could she do that and so people like but bethany could also 
pick somebody else like Coco, let's say, or Christina McHale or somebody else who's more on the bubble for doubles to get in or Vanya King. She'll have her, she'll have her choice. She'll be the power player here. That's the thing. She has so much power. And she can maybe pair with them for the year. Maybe she'll split up with Safarova. Maybe she'll keep playing with her. Maybe she'll put energy into the Olympics but, or not. But that's the funny thing too because – so like Caroline Garcia and uh, Christina Mladenovic both made the um, WTA finals in doubles mm-hmm. um, and had pretty successful seasons with their doubles partners. They split with their doubles partners, Mladenovic with Babos, uh, Garcia with um, Shrobotnik to pair with each other. Obviously, they're both French, maybe preparing for uh, a doubles run in Rio. And the interesting thing with that that I I think about when I think of Bethany is that, okay, arguably, you you should start to see a few more doubles teams kind of realign to be country-country teams. You see that every Olympic Uh, year, yeah. Right, to prepare. But at the same time, like if you're Bethany, actually, you kind of want to stick with Lucy because you need to defend the points. To even qualify. Yeah, I, I got to say, from my from my experience, having been around this this block a few times now for these Olympic cycles, I don't, I would not advise a player to split up for the Olympics and make an Olympic I would not formation. Either. Stick with what works for you. It's not worth sacrificing. If you're especially if you're a double specialist, it's not worth sacrificing your whole year based on Olympic chemistry because you can show up at the Olympics if you play like one or two events, play Wimbledon or something with your partner, but you don't have to play the entire year. Uh, I mean, Stan and obviously Stan and Roger are in a unique case because they're, you know, both multi-slam champs at this point, singles. Uh, but they won, you know, Beijing doubles with minimal prep. Uh, Venus and Serena yeah. don't play together that much. And they did well. Uh, the French teams always do well at the Olympics, and they don't play together but, all that much in those formations. That. I mean, you're talking about breaking successful partnerships to pair up for what is a one-week tournament, yeah. to prepare for a one-week tournament, and you're going to earn more ranking points and more money if you're just a successful doubles player, regardless of who plays with you. Yeah. I mean, what if you, what if those two pair up, Mladenovic and Garcia? And I don't think this will happen because I think Mladenovic is just so good as a doubles player. But like, and they don't qualify for Singapore. Like that that's like free money. You know, they're they're not winning tournaments. That's money they're giving up all because of the Olympics. And I understand because it's the Olympics, but. I don't know. This is kind of what I was getting at at the start of the podcast. It's just like how much, I mean, yes, how much it's does so it matter? easy. Yeah. How, it's so easy to care about it because it's the Olympics and we all love the Olympics. But at what point do you stop and you say kind of like Andy Roddick did back in 2008 yep. uh, in the China Olympics where he's like, I'm not playing, man. I want to win the U.S. Open. My career is, is ticking down. I'm not getting any younger. I don't want to put my U.S. Open in jeopardy. Like, so I skipped China. And also he was getting a huge appearance fee from Washington. There was also that. Not unrelated. Yeah. Yeah. And I you think, know, I think it, he wanted, he was a little bit sullen. I was with him in Washington that week when the Olympics were going on. And he was a little bit, like, sullen about it. I could tell that he yeah. was semi-regretting it after he saw the opening ca- ceremony and stuff. Yeah, he's Captain America. Yeah. You know, it's different if you kind of just don't have that connection or whatever. But, but, um, no, but he's I, such a yeah, on, patriotic guy. On that the doubles he, point, I remember Panetta and Dolka were a great team in, like, 2011. And they split up for 2012. Dolko was going to play with Paula Suarez, who came back just for the Olympics. And they didn't do all that great. And that's what I remember. This is what sort of undermines the idea of us having an Olympic episode this far out. But Suarez, Dolko was like a talked about team. Oh, Suarez came out of retirement for this. It's going to be great. And they lost first round. And yeah. it's suddenly over. It's yeah. like that. The Olympic dreams die fast. 
They die fast and they die quietly. Yeah, especially in doubles. It, it's like in, especially in doubles or in mixed or whatever it is. I mean, it it, it doesn't. It, it's just a weird thing to me to really completely sacrifice, especially for um, some of the veteran players who, you know, things are dwindling. Oh, well, maybe not. Maybe if you're a veteran player, you are more focused on the Olympics. I don't know. I mean, th- these are the things that I'm I'm genuinely curious about in terms of like talking to the players directly to get to ask them bluntly like do you care like not just on the record on the record they will all say they care but off the record like does this matter to you is it worth sacrificing your season is it worth um you know making decisions that are going to be that, that might have repercussions and i and i do wonder if like if if it if that decision uh, changes depending on the generation. And I think tennis players are not programmed for this because, I mean, a lot of other Olympic sports, like you look at uh, someone like a gymnast, like a Michaela Maroney, let's say, you know, is the best falter in the world and trains her whole life for the Olympics and then screws up once and gets a silver medal and looks pissed about it and everything's ruined. And she can kind of sulk about it in a way that tennis players don't get to. In tennis, you have to get back on the bike and compete again the next week. You can't get your hopes built up and put all in for one tournament, and it because it can have serious consequences if it goes badly for you. And then I think that yeah. on the other on the other end of the Olympic spectrum, I think like Marty Fish, who had a great Olympics out of nowhere in Athens. Athens. He made the made the finals. Was up two sets to one in the best of five final on uh, Nicholas Masu and lost in a heartbreaker in five, and never played Olympics again because he was just like so devastated by it. And he didn't have a result afterwards that sort of carried on that success. You know, you put you, and it's, it's so easy to get sucked into Olympic, the dream and all of that. Um, but when it goes sour, even at, not even like a silver medal situation, like that dramatically and that high stakes, but even if you lose first round, it can be bad. I remember Lee Na put a lot of pressure on herself in 2012 for the Olympics, for getting her seed up for the Olympics and things. And I think she lost first round to Hantikova. And that was a, a flop for her. Yeah. And I think after that ended, I think it was a bit the other way. I think she loosened up a bit and started playing better afterwards. But yeah, it, it yeah, should be, right. it should be it, a negative it's thing. So, it's so individual. And and I don't know. I mean, like, again, it's just easy to be seduced by it. But I think that if it were me, I would just really fight against it. I would really genuinely fight against this idea that I was going to throw away effectively a season a year of my career um, to chase this thing that could go so horribly wrong immediately. You know, like you remember like um, Murray in Beijing, mm-hmm. he like flew over and it was like a disaster. He lost like first round singles. He Randy Lou. Yeah. And then he and Jamie lost in, in doubles and it was just like, a, it was just like ugly. Then it was kind of like you, you get your hopes up and then you lose and you beat yourself up over a thing that actually doesn't have any relevance to your career, it may have personal relevance and obviously, and, and, you know, depending on the country, financial relevance, like you said, with China, if you, you know, if, if Sai Sai goes and, <laughs> and wins like a bronze medal, I mean, she's pretty set for life. Um, oh, yeah. And, and stuff like that. And like but Nicholas that, Masu made it, it still has like his yeah. on billboards in, in Chile uh, because of his win. And Gonzalez yeah. had amazing Olympic results. He was the one like real Olympic overachiever. Him and Dementia mm. were the two. Uh, yeah, no, it can't be for people, and it, it's, it's just a thing. It's not as clear cut as the rest of the tour, which I think can be frustrating for us, all of us who want all the puzzle pieces to fit in neatly. So, how much does Olympic win really mean? We got a question from Zachary Hertz who asked us, "How much does the Golden Slam matter when determining someone's place in the Pantheon?" The Golden Slam, for those of you who don't know, is winning 
all four Grand Slams and the Olympics, either in a calendar year or over the course of your career. Um, obviously, Steffi Graf, who won it all in 88, it's amazing regardless, but it seems luck-based. was your amazing year, even Olympics year, uh, for the one-year Golden Slam in a way that, say, the calendar slam ain't. Uh, so I guess like Novak Djokovic or Serena Williams, people will be talking about can they win the Golden Slam in 2016? Uh, whereas Serena obviously had an amazing year. Both of them had amazing years in 2015. It wasn't on the table. But I think I, the odds of that setting up are incredibly low for 2016. So I guess just let's talk career coordinate. I mean, does it does it matter for these players' careers if like Roger ends his career without a singles gold? If uh, Djokovic ends without a singles gold? If Serena hadn't won in London, would have been a, would have been a major bruise on her her legacy. No, <laughs> not at all. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I guess if if people are listening to me on this podcast, they're probably like, "Man, she hates the Olympics," and, and it's not that I hate the Olympics at all. I love the Olympics. To me, within tennis, the Olympics are like a funfetti cupcake. Delicious. Delicious. Bright and, and funfetti, colorful. Funfetti's fun. It makes you happy. You see, oh, they're funfetti cupcakes. This is amazing. They're That's gone great. so quickly. They're gone so quickly. Everybody wants one. But at the end of the day, is it really all that different from just a regular cupcake? No. Like if you got a regular cupcake, you'd be just as happy. Like uh, in retrospect. And I kind of feel that the Olympics are that way. I don't think that like winning the Golden Slam or winning Olympic gold is necessarily career making. I mean, the people that we remember as winning gold medals are people who had awesome careers. You know, the Nicholas Masseuse, we're like, yeah, all right. Um, even, actually, a Dementia, even a Dementia in Beijing, I think that a lot of people would be like, who won there? Actually, I would, I, go the, I would go the opposite way. I think that the Olympics matter more for people. That's all they get. I think it matters much more to a Masseuse caliber player than it does to Rafa, who no, won I, in Beijing. Like, how no, much does that change his legacy? Not no, at all, I think. What, but that's what I mean is that okay. people remember the players who didn't really have like, you know, the okay. massive careers because that is the biggest result of their career, right? That's the biggest result of Masu's career. It's the biggest result of Dementieva's career, whatever. And so it's the, it's the hook. But when I talk about Rafa, I don't talk about the fact that he's a gold medalist from Beijing. No, never comes up. Murray, it comes up a little bit because it, it, it actually is instrumental in in the narrative it kickstarted things and it was his home yeah yeah and it was home olympics and all that sort of stuff that serena has won gold we all already know serena's like a goat and if not if you don't think that she is the greatest of all time you recognize that she is one of the greatest of all time i don't think that like winning the olympics changes that i mean it's a bullet point it's a bullet point but it's not like if it wasn't there i don't think that you'd be criticized for it same with same with like fed cup davis cup if you finish your career and you didn't win it, like people just assume like, oh, bad luck or, oh, you didn't care or like, oh, it's not considered like a knock against your character yeah. that, or that or your talent that you didn't win it. I will say I've noticed in Andrew Crassley's announcements and we will probably have him on at some point in 2016 uh, to talk about, you know, his job hosting on court when he does and he does some of the writing himself, but not all of it. So I'm not sure how much of this is him. Uh, but when he's announcing the players, Olympic medals are always placed very prominently in an sure, because so they, translate they translate to... to casual fans right exactly and so they right. also probably translate to sponsors so there are things that within tennis it might not be as big a deal as it is outside of it like i remember jennifer capriotti saying uh that when she won the gold medal in barcelona in 2002 
she went back home and people who like didn't care at all that she made the friendship in semifinals because they didn't know what that was were like oh my god you won an olympic gold medal that's amazing and it resonated yeah, with people that's, that's fair on a totally different level and so th- that part of it's there for tennis players who want to feel like part of a bigger sports community because obviously they're pretty isolated from the rest of it they have short off seasons they are traveling all the time they don't get to go that like to the SBs and stuff like that that much in their various countries to the extent that's important at all and it's really not but for them, it might feel that way. And for them, it might be a sort of currency that translates. So, well, and the other thing yeah. that, that, that it does translate well with is the fact that a medal's a medal. Mm-hmm. Like, Laura Robson will always be an Olympic silver medalist. Yeah. And it doesn't matter that it was mixed. And it doesn't matter that she paired up with Andy Murray. It doesn't, you know, none of those things matter. Like, the fact is, you you have a freaking silver medal. Stan, right? and, like, Stan and Roger have golds. Stan and Rogers have, and, and yeah, those two have golds. Victoria Azarenka, gold medalist, yeah. mixed doubles. And, and a bronze singles. Lavochkova Radechka, silver medals. Yeah. I mean, I think that that is something that I really do like about the Olympics is, is that in tennis, we don't remember losers. And there is no reward for being a loser, right? You get dinner plate sometimes. Yeah, but, you know, whatever. <laughs> but, like, <laughs> I didn't have a witty comeback there. But within the Olympics, you get a gold medalist, you get a silver medalist, you get a bronze medalist. I think we all agree the silver medalist is ironically the worst because you didn't win. You lost the silver. Yeah. You lost. You win gold and bronze, you lost. You win gold and bronze, you lose the silver, um, which kind of sucks. But They've done like psychological surveys that bronze medal winners are happier later in life than silver medal winners. Yeah, because you feel like you earned something. Like you, yeah. you, you could have walked away with nothing. And exactly. When you, when you get the silver, all you're thinking is, oh, I wish I'd gotten gold. When you get the bronze, you're like, I'm so glad I didn't get fourth. Exactly. Yeah. Precisely right. So, you know, I mean, I, I think that that's a really nice thing about the Olympics is that it does give an opportunity for, for you know, when you think about the, the players who have Olympic medals, it's kind of heartwarming. You know, it, it's nice. It's a good thing. Yeah, for sure. No, and that's why I think tennis should be in there. I mean, I don't think there's a net negative for it. So let's get to the question that everyone seems to enjoy the most about the Olympics, which is figuring out mixed doubles teams. Ah. This was introduced to the Olympics in 2012. Too much fanfare. Sadly for me, my biggest complaint about the Olympics, actually, of all the things, is that the Olympic mixed doubles draw is so tiny. And it's done so haphazardly. It's only a 16-team draw, which is like nothing. And so a lot of great potential teams don't get in. I remember like not, Kleisters, not... Kleisters didn't get into mixed in London. Yeah. She might play with Rokas and... I don't know why it's smaller than the men's and women's. I just don't get that at all. But, but you and I have talked about this before about the idea that like the Olympics should be a team event. Yeah, no, that'd be great. It shouldn't even be sing. It shouldn't even be singles and doubles and mix. It should it, just be a singular team event. All these individual sports uh, at the Winter Olympics, especially that are not team sports, have been formatted into it just to inflate medals. And there's team figure skating now, where like the the mm. the Russians will all watch like each other and they'll have one person. Go out and do their women's, you know, uh, you know, solo skate, and then they'll have an ice dancing pair and a pairs pair and a and a guy, and they each like add their points together, and that's ridiculous. But it could so easily be done in tennis. Tennis could totally do that, and it'd be kind of cool. And like we talk about some of the permutations, like can you imagine what a juggernaut Switzerland would be in a team in a mixed team format, like two guys, two girls, world team tennis? Like holy crap! But even past that. Like America, yeah, America would be great. Also, it would be it would be fantastic. Like a Serena Isner double team. Well, uh, Serena, Isner, Serena, uh, Brian. Oh yeah, Serena Brian. It's like whatever it is. Like like 
I, I would love for there to be a legit competition that revolved around the idea of like what is the best tennis nation. And you know what? Honestly, I we would... don't have that in Fed Cup. We don't have. I mean, the closest we get is Hotman Cup, which is a total joke. It's becoming more of a joke. Yeah. And I, the thing is, I, I, if I had to choose, I would take that team event, that wonky team event, over the singles, over the regular stuff. Like I only get one. Absolutely. That's what I want. I want to I want the tennis Olympics to be something different in the rest of the year. And that's what was so t- so disheartening about you know the Dolko Suarez. Uh, first round loss in London is that it just felt like any other tournament. It was a draw. You play them first yep. round, half the teams lose, and they're half the Olympics is over for these people. I understand the Olympics are rough. The Olympics are more about broken dreams than dreams coming true. For uh, sure. When, once you actually get there in the competition, uh, making it obviously is a huge deal for most people. But yeah, why, why couldn't we do that? But the thing that sort of made it more fun, more crossover, is that this is the one event in mixed doubles in the year, in every four years, it matters. So, Corny, when you think about Rio mixed doubles, what are you hoping for? Well, I mean, the big one is happening, yeah. uh, which is Roger Federer and Martina Hingis. I think that's that's one that everybody had their eye on. I would love for Stan and Belinda to kind of lock that down. Okay, I have I have theories about the Swiss team. Oh, there's some game theory to do. Because okay. I think that what you do is you have Hingis play with Federer. That's already set. Then you have Hingis also play with Belinda for women's doubles, right? Yeah, yeah and then, totally. And then you let Stan play mixed with Baczynski, which oh, is okay. – they're both from Lausanne. They're like friends. They shared a coach. Her her coach is his former coach, Yep. Uh, Dmitry Zavialov. That's my that's my mixing for them. And then Stan and Roger play together, obviously. Obviously. I think that's, I think that's how you do it. Sure. And I, but, yes, the Federer-Hingis thing is the biggest thing. This was like a talked-about thing in 2011. Uh, it was actually like the first thing I ever broke as a reporter back on the Daily Forehand was that Federer had asked Hingis because Hingis was playing World Team Tennis. And I asked her, like, oh, would you play with Roger? Because she was retired at that point. Um, would you play with Roger? You know, and, he, and she was like, well, he asked me. And I was like, wait, what? And that was sort of a story. And I was like, oh, I should be a reporter. And so that one random pairing is why all of this in my life exists, I guess. So thank you, Roger. Which, which is kind of amusing because I have constantly made fun of you. Yeah. With respect to your obsession with Martina Hingis somehow playing the Olympics. Yeah. But yeah. No, so <laughs> um, enough about her. You just make fun uh, of Martina Hingis. I know. And um, yeah, no, I mean, I, the other, I mean, the other pairings that I'm looking forward to, I mean, I think Halep and Takao still is adorable. Oh, yeah. They were great. At the U.S. Open, I enjoyed them very much. So I'm looking forward to that one. Should that happen? Uh, should Should Simona want to play? In I mean, the of... French the Frenchies are really interesting. Yeah, they they could do have some good women now in the doubles side. Yeah, with yeah. Garcia and Mladenovic, we'll see who they pair with. I bet. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, one of them wanted to play with Malfis. I could see Malfis being a a, yeah. a convincing suitor, and probably Sanga also. I'm guessing they would wrap up the. The girls there, but I'm not sure they, they they got the girls would have options there for sure, because um, that's a you know sort of a sausage fest tennis wise France. <laughs> Let's see other other teams. Uh, Pays Mirza is going to be a very good team. Pays is a really good mixed doubles player. They play if they play. I think they will. They played in London against against like somewhat against her will that whole mess. But now she doesn't have any other options. Well, Pope yeah, that's true. They don't have. Bupati's fallen. It's retired. So I think that'll happen, and, and she'll know it's her best shot at a medal. Because she's not going to have a shot in women's doubles. Yeah, it's just a lot to ask of a person. 
So here's a question for you. <laughs> if I'm you, just saying. If you were a Brian brother, who would you want as your doubles partner? Serena. Okay. And who's your second pick if you're the other Brian doesn't get Serena first? Do you want Venus or do you want Bethany? I want Venus. Why Why Venus over Bethany? Weapons. At the end of the day, I think that, that if at least if I had Venus and she can volley, she can hit a big serve. I think that matters to me a little bit more. Not that, I mean, obviously Bethany's a great choice either Bethany's way. Bethany's won two mixed slams recently, so. Yeah, I know. Venus hasn't played a mixed slam. In a long time, yeah. So it, it, I don't think that that's necessarily a, you know, oh, Bethany's so much better when the other person hasn't competed in that. That's fair. But um, yeah, I don't think that you can go wrong. But I think that at the end of the day, I'm going to, if I'm a guy, I, I want a player who can hit a big ball, who can, not that Bethany can't, I'm just saying, but has a little bit, it has, it has more weapons. Um, and I think that Venus has that. One team that I would love to see, I doubt it's going to happen, but I'd be very happy to see Nadal Muguruza. That'd be hilarious. That'd be so. They would be good. She, they're both really good doubles yeah, players. Yeah, no, for sure. Of of the top five on each tour, they're some of the better doubles players out there right now. They could be very legit. Um, and the other Spanish team I'd like to see is Suarez Navarro and Mark Lopez. I just think they'd be oh, cute. Oh, adorbsies. Right? Yeah, for sure. I totally, I totally Rio ship them. Yeah. Rio ship. Yeah. So definitely let us know who are you Rio shipping. Hashtag Rio shipping. Rio shipping. Uh, that's too long. Rio ship. Rio ship. Okay. Or NCR Rio ship. I, obviously, I think Mirny's still playing. So uh, Mirny and Azarenko will probably be back at For it. For sure. And they Which might even I think some sort of exemption I think as they're, defending they'll champs. They'll be good. Yeah. Obviously. And the question is if Laura Robson will be ready to play with Andy Murray again and what Murray will do. Yeah. That's a that's a very, very. He's got three Chapantas in the mix and Watson's doing better. Question. I mean, I still think that, like, Andy just has better chemistry with Laura, yeah. regardless of kind of how good she is at any given time. Like, I just think that the, those two get along. They've played mix a lot. They played in Hoffman Cup. They played Olympics, obviously. Um, but, yeah, no, I, I hadn't even thought about that, about how the, that, that he can pick her. Yeah. He would have his top 10 exemption, I think, would count for mixed. Yep. Here's another question. If And they, they also might get one of the wildcard sauces, the silver medalist from London. Yeah. If you're Sam Stoser, who do you pick? If you get in, because ranking-wise, she might not, because the cut is very high for mixed. But uh, if you get your choice, if you're Sam, who do you pick? I, t- I take Nick. You take Nick? I take Nick. No, okay. I take. I would take Roth. Oh, I can see that. But no, I take Nick. Why Nick? It'd be fun. The <laughs> uh, Sam seems like she wants to have fun out there? Hold up. Don't you dare try to paint Sam Stozer into this square, boring box she wants to have a good time i think that nick would be she'd get all the gossip that's pretty good yeah no i think i think stozer and curios would be i mean nick curios is a very good tennis player he's dynamic he's he he can cover the net. Players, yeah yeah no I, I think that uh i think that'd be pretty good i could actually totally if he got and i'm not sure he would want to pick stozer though he might try to go for like gavrilova i do not see curios gavrilova uh Kyrgios. Or Delacqua. Delacqua could be a top 10 player Kyrgios. if she gets back healthy. Kyrgios Tomjanovic. Ah, she's not eligible. How is she not eligible? Because she played for Croatia that once and she can't be an Aussie at the ITF size. <sighs> she's, remember? Yeah, no, I know, but... So, like, Bedene is not Olympics eligible either. I mean, I just remember when I spoke to Isla last year that the, one of the big reasons was, was this idea of, like, you know, playing for Australia and whatever. So, and when I talked to Max at the time... 
he had said, no, our paperwork's in, we're good, we've been assured that we're fine. So I was kind of operating under that uh, that assumption, but you're right. I mean, I haven't gotten that confirmed. Yeah, no, my, my understanding is that she's out, and that Gavrilova's in, and that's sort of the, the, the Because she never played for Russia. For Russia before, so yeah. So dumb. Such a dopey rule, yeah. as we've been over. Sure. Other mixed teams, let me just look at the bit of a Burditch. They won eh. Hotman Cup together once. Yeah. I mean, they might be good. That pairing does not excite me in any way, shape, or form. Radvanska, they're still Polish guys playing doubles, right? Makowski's still he's still a top enough player. Can Jersey get his ranking up to where they pair it together? They're fun. He had to go way up. Where know. is he like now? He Jersey? Yetzi Yanovitz is, is scrolling, 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 <laughs> scrolling, scrolling. Oh, 57. Yeah, they're not getting it. Maybe. To mixed. Oh, yeah, maybe not. Cuts from mixed are so high. Like, you can be a top 20, top 20 pairing and not get in sometimes. Fair enough, fair enough. It's very selective. Uh... Here's a question. Does Fabio lure Flavia out of retirement for, for romance and Rio mixed? No, he does not. Okay. I do not fair. think that uh, Fabio is, like, jonesing to play more tennis. <laughs> Ever. <laughs> so, no. That's very fair. If you are... Djokovic, who do you pick? Anna. Anna? He's played with her more. He has. And he has better chemistry. He, they know each other. They have fun. I mean, it, because mix is like weirdly at the end of the day, like you just want to have fun first and foremost and have a good time. Like, chemistry is more important than a regular double. Exactly. Like. It's more fraught. Yeah. Do you think we can get Nisha Corey Date Kron? <sighs> that would be amazing. How good would that be? So good. But I don't think you can. Because K's not top 10. It has to be top 10 doubles. Yeah, yeah. you have to be top uh-huh. 10 doubles. So now... Darn. I don't see that That's such a good idea. Oh, another cute team, which I'd like to see, which were great at Hopman, but won't make the cut, uh, sadly, probably, unless they both have amazing 2015, 2016s, is Dimitrov Parankova. Oh, that'd be wonderful. They were so good at Hopman. Yeah. They were so, they were so fun. good. They were so much flair. All of that. I'm into that. So yeah, so you guys send us your Rio ships. Hashtag Rio ship. And hope that your dreams come true. Shipping is a concept on the internet. It's still one of the most baffling things to me. It's just like the, one of the most interesting. People get so into it. And put so much. Shipping is real. It's very real. I don't appreciate any thought that it is any derogatory comments towards shipping. I'm not it's saying it's derogatory. Thing. I'm just saying I'm saying the depths of it can surprise me. Okay, fair enough. That's fair. That's fair. And the intensity. Yeah. For those, I'm not. I'm not. For those people who do it, do it. You know, for their own uh, gratification, for their own satisfaction of whatever imagine imagination they want. Awesome. Got weird. Yeah, got weird. <laughs> <laughs> that still reminds me. Of my favorite like podcast title, like uh, my favorite like I don't listen to it, but it's just a great podcast name. You made it weird. <laughs> I just think that's great. It's pretty good. <laughs> it would be a pretty good alternate title for us. Yeah, exactly. Last question that's sort of hovering over Rio, which we can get to quickly. We got a question from Nicole Desplat on our email who asked us, obviously Venus Williams is someone we often look to as a potential, who has the potential to retire after next year's Olympics. Do you anticipate as much of a large crop of players retiring as I do? With so many players at the top of the game getting deeper into the 30s, I expect a lot of changes before 2017. And that's been something people talked about it's been Rio has been associated with retirement kind of since it got announced. I feel like so many players have had Rio on the horizon for some reason. And you've heard, well, I want to play for Rio when they had anything asked about their future. Rio has always been pointed to in the distance. 
But as Rio approaches Courtney, are we going to see an exodus following it? Will the sunset on the Copacabana and the and the and tennis? Yeah, I mean, I think so. I mean, I think that any player who's is 32 or over is pretty much at risk of of, of walking away pretty quickly after Rio, just because it makes practical sense. Not because I think that those players can't play anymore or like whatever, but it would be a kind of a perfect time to walk away from the game. So yeah, I mean, I, I think that you will see a bit of a mass exodus because again, with the Olympics and tennis, it hasn't been since, it's you know, Beijing was really the turning point in terms of when people really started to take tennis at the Olympics seriously, like the players. Mm-hmm. So that kind of culminates, it feels like, in Rio, right? Like Beijing was the first movement. And then obviously, you know, London, we're playing at Wimbledon. Obviously, we're going to go. And then Rio's freaking awesome. So we're going to go there. So it, I think that the carrot is is very real to, to stick around and play Rio. So after that, I would expect a, I would expect a, a bit of an exodus for sure. Yeah, I probably would too. I, I think that even some players could catch us off guard. The one name that I have no evidence of this at all. The one name that pops in my head is a possible premature or one. Especially if she happens to win a gold, it'd be Sharapova. Uh, yeah, I know. I know a lot of people are talking about Maria. I, I, I just don't see it. Okay. I really don't. I, I just think that she's too ambitious to walk away at that point. You know, one more, one more French, one more Wimbledon. You know, whatever it is, I, I just don't see her walking away quite then. Yeah. But yeah, we'll see. I hope she doesn't. I mean, that's the thing with. I, I want all these players. Who, who enrich a sport. I want them all to hang around as, as long as possible until, sure. until they are within reason. I don't need them completely dragged off the canvas. Overall, the players are we're very lucky to have them. And they are also, so many of them, as prize money has increased in the sport, is a factor, maybe not for Sharapova, but for a lot of them, you know, there's more and more incentive to stay around than ever before. And why not? If you're playing, you're making better living, you're having more fun than that's you will true. post-career. That's very true. I think that's like a ski of Oni rule at this point. Yeah. Ski of Oni yep. is like flirting with direct acceptance to Australia. I'm not sure if she's in or not uh, directly. And But why, why would she retire? What else would she do? She, she likes tennis. She's having a great time. Yeah. And Leighton Hugh is probably the same way. Who is hanging it up finally in uh, in Australia this year. But yeah, I, I think Hopefully, I think you might be less than we expect. We thought it might happen to London too. There was some talk about the same thing, and the only one we really got was Roddick. Yeah, who made it? Who seemed like looking back, it was pretty clear that he was sort of a little bit saying his goodbyes during that summer there. But yeah, uh, it might be less than we expect. But they got they all got to leave at some point, unfortunately. And we are sort of the dam is there's a backup of players who are getting older and older. It's possible the dam bursts in Rio. Hope not. But you know, bring your umbrellas and your tissues. So thank you guys very much for listening to this Olympic edition of the show if you want to send us questions for the last couple episodes we have in the off season you're more than welcome to do that no challenges remaining at gmail.com and hopefully we can get to a few of them there before we reboot for 2016 down under if you want to follow along with us when you're not listening you can do so by following us on twitter at ncr underscore tennis you can like us on facebook facebook.com slash ncr podcast you can subscribe to us on itunes or any other podcast feed where we now have more of our archives available for your archive digging and binge listening and whatever other things you want to find from the last Olympics or any time in between. It's all there for you now, which hopefully has been fine. It's fun. I've seen from the numbers. We've had a lot of old episodes getting listened to a lot in the last couple of days, which has been cool. And yeah, so that's about it for us. And also thank you very much. Once again, as we said in our last episode, less than 24 hours ago, uh, thank you very much for all of your Kickstarter support, which once again, those of you who didn't hear it the first time, 
has been overwhelming and humbling and incredible. Most definitely. And like I said in our emergency podcast, I have had the sense explicitly from people who have emailed me who are in the, in the industry that they're incredibly impressed by what, um, not that it's something that we're doing, but kind of just the response from the fans of NCR in, in terms of backing this project and um, proving to everybody that, that tennis fans want quality content, that they don't want the low-hanging fruit, the lazy stuff that is very easy to churn, right? Like it, it's super easy to like call up John McEnroe and ask him for opinions and then run like eight stories off of his crazy opinions. Like that's super easy. But to actually like do some reporting and, and, and you know, your money that you're giving us is going to go towards funding projects that, you know, we've always wanted to do. But maybe the outlets that we work for, that we freelance for, have never been able to fund us to do. Projects you haven't heard before. Exactly. And so that, I think, for Ben and I is is the most important thing, is that some of the things that are on the table are things that we know no one else is doing and that no one else will be able to do because no other – you know, newspaper or website or whatever will actually pay somebody to go do it. Greenlight that, yeah. Exactly. But you guys are actually giving us the money and trusting us to do great things with it. And that's a big responsibility, but we are up for it. And as Ben said, it's been incredibly humbling. We hope it continues for the next 34, 35 days. Yeah. And, and the thing on that front is, I mean, we are, it's not the typical Kickstarter that like you buy a product and the amount of money the Kickstarter makes is just how many of the product they move. You know, if you're selling, I, I invented a new board game or something and you, everyone gets a copy of the board game. We're not doing that. But the more money we get, the more donors we get at any level will increase the product for everybody. You know, more and more things will be able to, to green light and be possible if this does go further. And obviously it's gone amazingly beyond our expectations already. But the more it keeps going, the more everybody sort of wins, I think. No, without without a doubt. And um, and for those people who aren't backers yet, um, I did write this in the most recent update that I wrote on the Kickstarter page is that, you know, so the, the, the fans, the, the listeners who have backed us, you know, we respect your opinions. We You have now put your money where your, your mouths are, where your downloads are. Where your ears are. Yeah. yeah, where your ears are. And um, you've backed us. And, and to the extent that that has happened, your opinions matter to us. I mean, you are now effectively, in a lot of ways, our shareholders in a way that any any other corporation would, would operate. So, you know, I want to hear from you. I want to hear, you know, what you want to hear in 2016. What have we done that you love? What have we done that you're like, eh, maybe not, <laughs> you know, but but your opinions now, your opinions just matter more to me because you've, you've done you've backed us. It's a vote of confidence in us, which we definitely appreciate because we put this show out into the ether and it's pretty much a one-way conversation. For sure. Almost always. We do get some questions, obviously, but they're from a very small, uh, beloved percentage of our our listenership, but small compared to the numbers for sure. And so this is a nice way for people to raise their hand or say, hey, I'm here and I think this and this. And we'll say, oh, hi. We'll wave back and get excited to see you. Like every time, because I get the Kickstarter app on my phone, and so every time I get like an alert saying so-and-so donated $5, I'm like, oh, thank you, and say their name. And it's so. exciting. Yeah. And we now – and that's the other thing with the Kickstarter page is just donating at any level, any amount uh, gets you access to the backers-only content, which we have going. And Courtney, you want to plug your contest one last time before time runs out. Sure. Yes. No. Um, so uh, my ro- most recent uh, backers-only post – is um, obviously a thank you, but also opening up a, a, a contest where if by Wednesday of this week, which is the 16th, I want to say, mm-hmm. of December, by 5 p.m., if you are a backer 
and you submit some sort of comment just letting us know what you wanted to hear, what you would love to see from NCR in 2016, or even if it's as simple as like, you guys are awesome, thank you very much, that's cool too. But if you submit some sort of comment, you'll be entered into a drawing to win um, a commemorative ATP book about the history of the number ones uh, on the ATP tour. Uh, it's a great book. It's very beautiful. It's very much a, a coffee table book, yeah. and it's great for any tennis fan. So, But in order to be eligible for it, you need to be a backer, and you need to submit a comment. So um, you know, even if it's $5, every bit counts. I am, I was, as I was saying before in the, the uh, emergency podcast that we had, I am just as obsessed with the number of backers we have as the amount. Mm -hmm. You know, at, at this point, you guys have overfunded us, and it's great. Um, it's far more than we ever dreamed of. It's awesome. So I, what I would love to see is just the number of backers right. begin to swell. So five bucks here, ten bucks there, whatever. But that's what I want to see, and um, you know, it, there's a benefit to it. And so we'll keep putting some some exclusive content on the backers only section of, of the campaign. And at some point Ben will weigh in. I, I feel like I'm the one that's like talking random nonsense all the time to our Kickstarter backers. I did one um, of the updates. We've had four, right? I know, but yours wasn't full of nonsense. Mine's full of nonsense. Yours was actually like practical and pragmatic and informative. You know me. I'm just so practical and pragmatic in all facets of life. That's exactly what I think of when I think of Ben Rothenberg. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, good. Let's finish this show off with a rant rave. Should I go first, Courtney? Please go first, Ben. Okay. Mine is brief. Uh, I watched the movie Tangerine. I don't know if you've heard of this, Courtney. I have not. Okay. Tangerine is a movie that's getting showing up on a couple uh, top ten lists of best film critics of the year. It, it's a movie about two transgender hookers in L.A. and the sort of misadventures they get into on Christmas Eve one year. And... What's notable about it, I think, from a lot of the critics' point of view, is that it was filmed entirely. It's a feature-length film. It's like 90 minutes long, or 90, 100 minutes, something like that. Normal feature length. I said it was filmed entirely on an iPhone 5s. Wow. Okay. And so, just the sort of spirit of it. It's obviously a very, very low-budget movie. I think they must have had some other sound equipment they were using, and it's obviously like the nicest possible, like post-production or you know graphics effects. Or not made as possible, but some very nice things and they use steady cams and stuff so it's not shaky not like a Blair Witch situation but just to sort of it just made me think of the accessibility now that people have of uh creating things and I guess you know in the YouTube era that's always been the case anybody can make anything and put it on the internet and it can become a success uh or you know infamous in its own viral way and this seemed like a more polished way to do that and it's it just made me happy about all the access of you know web 2.0 and this seems like a further version of it to make a full feature-length film with this relatively minimal technology that tells a sort of story from a sort of community that would not ever get much play uh, in the in the mainstream Hollywood factories. I, I will say, though, Courtney, the Duplass brothers, who you're a fan of, like, ex well, like produced had some role in it. They, like, produced it or executive That sounds about right. Yeah, it's kind of that their sounds, speed. That sounds accurate. Yeah, it's very Jay and Mark Duplass, for sure. Yeah, so that's my, that's my thing. Just It, it made me... Feel like if you have you know this goes to us with our show a little bit I guess if we have you know Skype and microphones we can make a podcast and you guys have the two you guys have the tools I'm sure whatever they are you can listen to this show you have the tools to make something pretty cool so don't feel like you need the biggest and best things you need to go out and buy you know fifteen thousand dollar DSLR to take a photo you can do pretty good things with what you have 
So it's adorable that you think a DSLR costs fifteen thousand dollars. There might be some that cost that much, right? Something. Uh, no. I mean, with lenses, like multiple lenses, maybe. Let's go with that. But, uh, Let's go with that. Yeah, sure. Okay, Courtney, uh-huh. what's what's your what's your accurately priced rant rave? <laughs> uh, actually, yeah. I mean, it is accurately priced. I'm going to rant rave for a thing that exists that I think is actually a really great gift for. I mean, anyone of any age, but particularly like young folk. So if you are an aunt or an uncle or a big sister or a big brother or whatever, and you're looking for a holiday gift for a youngster. Define young. Um, I mean, honestly, it's of all ages. Okay. So I'll describe it and you can figure out whether or not this person would be up for it or not. But um, I've kind of recently gotten into Kendama, which is... You can Google, you can Google it, and you can also actually, I would encourage you to look it up on YouTube because it's um, that's where I kind of got fascinated with it. But it's this Japanese toy that is made out of wood, and it has a, it's it's almost kind of shaped like a cross with like little cups on each of the three ends or four ends, I guess, and it has a a wood ball attached to it by string, and very simply, you know, the goal of the kind of toy is that you kind of pull the ball up. Uh, into the air and you try and catch it on one of the cups is this like a really old concept i think like the ball string cup thing has been around a while yeah yeah no it has it's not a cup cup it's kind of a a, a very shallow just kind of dent it's it's not a cup you know so it takes like hand-eye coordination some balance things like that but it's i don't know like it's weirdly meditative it's 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 really fun i find the challenge of it very fun i take it with me on the road i had it with me when i was in asia and i would just you know, if I needed to unwind or I was having writer's block or whatever, I would just like get up from my desk and grab my kendama and play with it for like 15 to 30 minutes and get better at it. And it's it's almost kind of like playing like golf because it's it's a very precise sort of thing. But anyways, is it, easy, is it hard or easy? How, how often? What's your success rate with it? I mean, it's not easy. I mean, it, my success rate is like I can probably catch it at this point. I can probably catch the ball on the bigger cup like eight out of ten times oh, that's pretty good yeah it's pretty good but i've been doing it for like six months okay so you know for a young kid you know it's going to take some focus but i i i like that about it that it's it's this very simple game that or toy that you know can kind of build focus you know i think that nowadays it's very easy to kind of almost even if you're not add to have add like that you're constantly fear, you know, the, FOMO. The world is whatever. certainly built for ADD right now. Exactly. I wish I was a kid now. I would have gone nuts. Yeah, exactly. So, like, for me with the Kendama, it's kind of one of those rare moments where I'm just completely focused on a thing. It's kind of like how I play video games. It's the same thing. It's like this singular task that uh, that's goal-oriented that I do, and it kind of relaxes my mind weirdly. But, um, but the Kendama kind of does that as well. So... You know, if, if if there's somebody that you have ever thought about being like, hey, maybe I'll buy that guy a yo-yo or that girl a yo-yo or something like that kind of type of toy, get them the Kandama instead. And it, it, it's fun. I, I, I've really enjoyed it. I completely take back what I just said about wishing I was a kid now because I don't. I feel like I was very lucky to come up in an age where I wasn't <laughs> addicted to an iPad. And just like I see yeah. these kids who are like five years old who are just like entranced by iPads all the time and they never look at anything It's disappointing. Else. And it's sad. And these kids clearly need Kandamas. Or, or just screen time limits. No, really. I mean, like, I feel like I came, both of us, I guess, came at a time where we, computers were new. And we sort of, like, been around for most of the 
progression, at least on some level, of screen entertainment in terms of interactive, sure. you know, Atari to Game and Boys and whatever else. And yeah, now, and they, now they're just so spoiled right away with this iPad thing that's so overstimulating that I feel like it sort of breaks them for everything else. Yeah, and, and that's what I have really enjoyed about the Kendama is that, you know, Ben, you know, for some trips, I will take my PlayStation with me mm-hmm. and set it up and like whatever. And that's great. It's it, it clears my mind. It helps me relax. But it's also a very indoor thing. And with the Kendama, like you literally can just carry it with you wherever you can go to a park. You can be outside. You can just play with it. And yeah, I don't know. It's it's kind of nice. And it's very analog. Yeah. And that's what I, I do enjoy about it. I have that with a Rubik's Cube. I bought a, I, yeah. Telling you this in Cincinnati, I bought a Rubik's Cube. It was like I suddenly made it a bucket list item to learn how to do it. Not to just solve it like once, but to know how to do it. Yeah. I haven't quite gotten there. I watched like 35 minutes worth of a YouTube instructional and got most of the way there and then got stuck and then got frustrated. <laughs> so I'll restart yeah. again. I'll, I'll keep it in my backpack and pull it out when times get bleak and, and keep trying. But that's sort of my my, my nerdier kendama. I heard that's Rubik's good. the Hang Up and Listen podcast did a segment about Rubik's Cube speed records. And they said, uh, I think Mike Pesca had a line, which I like, said like Rubik's Cubes are the thing that dumb people think being smart is, is solving <laughs> Rubik's Cube. And... I want to be that. That's fair. I want people of all, not the people who think that are immediately dumb, but like I want people to be like, hey, that guy knows how to do that. That's impressive. And maybe a kendama has the same effect on people. I don't know. But uh, I just think I, I need that sort of self-validation for myself. I have Rubik's Cube insecurity, I guess. Oof. Is that weird? That's probably pretty weird. It's a little weird. Yeah. Okay. I'm okay with that. It's out there. Yeah. And <laughs> this is out there as well, this whole episode. And we will sign out from here. Talk to you guys later. We'll be back with more normal programming, more questions next week. Bye, guys. See y'all.